Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 105, Recycling Water and Air. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information about what's going on right here at NASA. So a while back in February, we spoke to John Lewis, the manager of the Orion Environmental Control and Life Support Systems. And we talked about how Orion is specifically designed to provide a livable, reliable environment for travel through a harsh, deep space environment. Well, a little closer to home, the International Space Station relies on these systems, which we call ECLIS systems, and you'll hear that a lot during this episode. These systems sustain a livable environment for crew members staying in low Earth orbit for a long period of time. There's a lot of elements that go into an ECLIS system. The parts of the space station where astronauts live have an atmospheric pressure of 14.7 psi, about the same as Earth at sea level uh, for the crew, but also then for sensitive equipment stored on the station. It's a mixed air environment of nitrogen and oxygen, again, like on Earth. And there are systems for scrubbing every exhale of CO2 and replacing it with more breathable oxygen, which is very important. There's also some systems that pull in water from every available source, urine, sweat, even just humidity or an astronaut's breath, and then it recycles it into potable or drinkable water. We're reclaiming 90% of the water used at this point. There's another system for splitting water into breathable air and another for turning air into water. What? The idea is to maximize the finite and very limited resources available. This includes a partially closed loop system to reuse and recycle these resources. For exploration to other worlds, they will need to be more reliable, easier, easier to maintain, and, and even more efficient. And then designing these systems, that good is going to be very, very challenging. So today we'll be talking more in depth about these systems on the International Space Station with our guest, Laura Shaw, the International Space Station Program Lead for Exploration Life Support Systems. Man, that is a complicated title. But Laura goes into what's on board the station now and how we're improving these for the sake of exploration, which is a term we use a lot during uh, this episode. Really, it just means exploring beyond low Earth orbit, exploring other worlds. Very important for, for the International Space Station being used to test all of these systems. And this is a very exciting topic. So with no further delay, let's jump right ahead to our talk with Miss Laura Shaw. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about uh, environmental control systems on the space station. Good morning. Um, you know, at, when, when just a couple weeks ago when we did an interview on on this subject, it was just my job to basically set up the interview and, and listen. But it was just absolutely fascinating. You know, there's it's it seems fairly simple. You know, when you're on the space station, there's going to be stuff that keeps the astronauts alive and healthy, which is, you know, very normal. But but what it takes to do that is multiple systems, and, and uh, it's it, it can get a little bit complicated. So I'm glad that you can come on to talk about this. And I kind of wanted to start there. Just what is, it's called ECLIS, and I, and I feel like we're, it's, it's inevitable. We're going to say ECLIS a bunch of times, but it's Environmental Control and Life Support Systems. Basically, you know, making it a habitable space in this tin can of a, of a spacecraft. Right. Um, you know, what, what is it? What is an environmental control and life support system? 
Right. It's what you said. It's it's um, creating a habitable environment. So what I like to sort of um, compare it to is we're creating a small planet on this inside the spacecraft, one that can support the humans. And so uh, we have to we have to um, create this environment that makes them comfortable, obviously keeps them alive. Obviously, that's the minimum. Um, so so we create, you know, an atmosphere they can breathe. We create good clean water that they can drink. We provide bathroom facilities. Um, so and, and we remove contaminants from the air that they that they plus their equipment generate so that we can keep the air the air quality clean. So it's so you know and, and going into that, there are multiple components of this, right? So what what it, what does it take to keep a crew member alive in space? It's 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 the pressure, it's the air composition, it's right. and like you said, scrubbing the air. What does that mean? Why do we have to scrub the air? So what are the right. different components? Right. So as you said, we need um, an atmosphere. So we need structure to hold the air in, uh, and it needs to be at the right pressure so that the crew's lungs you know, can function normally. And it has to be at the right concentration of oxygen and nitrogen. Um, so that again, so that the crew's body knows what to do with it. Um, we need to scrub out the things that are waste products. So carbon dioxide is the most major of those. And people are probably familiar with the Apollo 13 uh, issue with the CO2 scrubber had, uh, you know, they, they, they ran out of cartridges, they had to mock, mock up the um, square peg in the round hole issue. <laughs> That's what we're dealing with. You know, we're still dealing with obviously carbon dioxide being removed from the atmosphere. So um, so that's a very key uh, contaminant to be removed. And then there are also trace contaminants, we call them. So some formaldehydes, things that the crew themselves actually off gas. We actually, humans, you know, give off some, some uh, products. And then their clothes, their equipment, their hygiene products, things like that will we'll give off uh, contaminants that we need to remove so that they have a good clean atmosphere to breathe. Um, so that's for the most part the air revitalization system and then we have the water recovery water processing system. So we we start with the bathroom function so we've got facilities for both liquid and solid human waste collection and then we take the the urine from the crew and we uh, there's a lot of water held up in that so we, you know we can't continue to resupply water. It's very heavy, it's very expensive to launch equipment to space. So we um, process the urine with a distiller and we remove uh, the good water from there and then we use another system to combine the distillation product and the uh, humidity condensate, which is crew uh, exhaled breath, has a lot of humidity in it, as well as sweat. We collect all of that um, and we process that to potable water. And it's very, it sounds gross, but it's actually very <laughs> clean water. We actually, we monitor its quality continuously uh, to make sure that it's, it's good, you know, for crew to drink and, and they seem to like it. You know, I, I heard that, uh, and, and you can probably confirm that this is true, if, if the, the potable water, the water that the astronauts are drinking on space station is actually relatively cleaner than, I guess, average water that we drink on Earth. Yes. Yeah, that is awesome. Yeah. And yeah. it's coming from urine, which is yes. especially especially uh, important. Right. Um, I believe urine is actually the, the largest source of recycled water. Is right. that right? That is right. So about half. About half. Okay. Yeah, so, so it's, but it's, yeah, the rest of it is from multiple sources, including some of our, as we'll talk about later, I think, regenerative systems that recover some, some water um, from the air. You'll, we'll talk about that later, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the basics of, of a successful environmental control system on the space station is dealing with air and water. 
For the most part. Yes. Yes. For the most part, right. Yes. Okay, so so before we get into, and, and I kind of wanted to go into detail of all of these systems and exactly what they're doing, but before we do that, you know, this is where we are now, obviously, we're, we're, and we're, I w- would you say we're fairly good at it? We're fairly good at sustaining this environment in space? Yeah, I mean, we've had crew on board ISS almost 20 years continuously, so... Um Yes, we've gotten good at it. <laughs> the hard part, the regenerative piece we'll talk about, has mm-hmm. been up there for about 10 years. And we it's it's difficult. You know, it's there's a lot of um, fluids flowing from one system to the other. There are a lot of challenges there. But we've learned a lot, and that's going to help us uh, both continue operating ISS and then on to the next thing out of of low Earth orbit to the next to, to the moon or Mars or, or wherever we go. Interesting. So so ten years. So so there was there was a there was a starting point. Obviously, we had to start somewhere. Where where did the International Space Station start, and then how did it evolve to to get to that regenerative system right. to ten years? Right. So when we initially launched the modules to space. Um, there were no life support systems initially, and so we relied on, at the time, the space shuttle, which brought up the U.S. modules. Um, and then as we added modules, those also came with the life support systems. So that was the point in time where we could actually have permanent habitation of the space station, was when we added those life support systems. The first ones were, for the most part, the things that are what we call a, a quick time to effect. So the CO2 removal device, you need to remove that. Uh, quickly and it has to be continuous or else crew can be affected very quickly Um, and obviously we got to supply oxygen we did that with tanks for a very long time mostly from the shuttle as a resupply vehicle Um, so we added co2 removal oxygen supply uh, and then temperature and humidity control that's another aspect we didn't talk about by the way is a comfortable atmosphere like part of living in like a, a you know a house is having a controlled environment so a good temperature that's fairly comfortable and humidity levels that are comfortable. So that's another aspect. So we added those to the ISS um, to make things comfortable for crew when they were living. And then we evolved to the water processor, the urine processor, um, the oxygen generation system that creates oxygen from water. Um, And then we had some additional, um, we'll talk about the Sabatier, which which takes, uh, takes in CO2 and hydrogen and creates water out of it. So um, that's how we, that's kind of how we've evolved yeah. over time. So yeah, let's, there's, there's a lot that we want to talk yeah. about, obviously, because there's a lot of elements to this. So, so let's just get right into it. And I think one of the most important elements that you, that you noted right up front, and especially when we talked to John Lewis about the Orion systems, which is a much smaller cabin and right. how they have to deal with that. One of the first things that you have to consider is getting rid of that CO2. Yes. So how does that work now? How do we get rid of, of carbon dioxide on space station? Okay. Um, we use adsorbent beds with a material called zeolite that is it has a strong desire to absorb CO2. So we've got we've got the zeolite material packed in a, a bed, and we flow air through it basically. Before that, we take out a little bit of the water because it is, the zeolite's affected by water negatively. So we pass the air with CO2 in it through these beds, and that zeolite just grabs onto the CO2, and then the, the air comes back out, and it's lower in CO2, and that's how we scrub the atmosphere of, um, of the CO2. Sounds now, like a filter, essentially. Basically, but the problem is you're going to fill that filter up. And so to get rid of that, um, to get rid of it on that filter, we actually expose, we use a little bit of temperature, and we expose these beds to vacuum, and that actually, or low pressure, and that drives the CO2 off of the zeolite, and we either vent it to space or we use it to process further, further on in our regenerative system. Um, 
And so there are two of these beds, and one of them is always removing the CO2, and one of them is always getting rid of it and venting it overboard so or to, to the processor. So there's always one of them. They're, they're out of phase, right? And so there's one of them that's always absorbing um, the CO2 from the atmosphere. Are they in the same place of the space station? Yes. So there are, yes, each of the, we have two, two full systems because it's such an important function. Right. Um, it's called the CEDRA, the Carbon Dioxide Removal Assembly. There are two. One of them's in Node 3 and one of them's in the U.S. lab. Um, yes. So each of those CEDRAs has two beds inside of it that are out of phase and operating to continue, continue to absorb versus desorb or get rid of that that co2 i see so they're so they're basically next to each other one's on the inside this is the one getting rid of the co2 yep. and at the same time there's another one uh just venting you said yep. venting it off yep. I, and I then guess. they switch and then they switch right. yeah because it's basically like cleaning the filter yep essentially okay exactly. um yeah how does that work is that is that an automatic thing is that something that needs crew re, uh interaction or anything no the the system has a controller attached with it you mm. know to it that that um it knows what to do and when so it, it switches between those beds on a, a planned basis automatically. Okay. Yeah. Um, these 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 beds that have uh, zeolite. Zeolite. Mm -hmm. Zeolite. Um, do they need to be switched out every once in a while, just kind of like a dirty filter? So yes, we've um, we've learned a lot about these beds over mm. time. Um, they they do clog with some particulate. We get some dust coming off of the zeolite material, so we've had to replace the beds um, periodically. To, to regain the function. And okay. this is an area we're focusing on for improvements for exploration um, because it's such a key, important area. Oh, okay. Yeah. What sorts of what sorts of improvements do need to be made for exploration? Um, we're looking at some alternate materials inside those beds that don't have that dusting issue that I mentioned. I see. Um, we are also looking at that same material and just containing the um, the dust a little bit better or reducing it by geometries of the zeolite, things like that. Um, We've just learned a lot about the details of these systems and, you know, little little tweaks you can make that make the operation more efficient, more reliable. Um, so just a better better system to take to take far away from Earth, which is a lot you know a lot harder to do. to do. You have to take a lot of spares with you. Yeah. Now now thinking about better systems, I think I think one of them, if I'm not mistaken, is called thermalamine. That's Did right. I get that thermalamine right? scrubber. Yep. Okay. So so what is this? Is this an exploration technology? It is. In okay. fact, it's on its way to ISS right now. It there you go. It's on NG11. Um, yes, it is amine-based. Instead of zeolite, the media that removes the CO2 is called amine, an amine bead. Um, and so it's a similar type setup where it has the two beds. It actually has four beds. Um, but they're smaller, and so they're, they're instead of just two going back and forth, there's four going back and forth faster. It, it just may, may be a little bit more efficient. I see. We're going to find out. Um, but, but yes, so that one, uh, we're, we're, we're going to test it, and we're going to see, does it have any other of these similar types of concerns? The amine beads are the same, actually, as in the Orion CO2 removal device. Oh, really? Yeah. So, th so this goes back to your point about you know the the International Space Station as a as a test bed, right. you know. But like when we're thinking about ex exploring even further out, right. you know, we're talking about this gateway. We're talking about lunar exploration. While we have the International Space Station, let's check out some of these important yes. things. Just like for example, carbon dioxide scrubbing, which is one of the most important elements of keeping crew members alive in space, right. and test out this possibly more efficient technology. That's what you're saying. We're gonna we're gonna check it out. Let's see we if are. it's better. We're gonna fly it and we're gonna turn it on and. We're going to see what happens. We're also going to fly two other technologies um, that are a bit different. 
One of them is just like that Cedra I mentioned, but but improved. Um, and we're going to test those as well. Hmm. And then we'll have a lot of data to make a good choice for um, for expiration. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And that's you said it's coming up right now. I mean, we're recording this in what April now, yep. and uh, at this time, April eighteenth, the Northrop Grumman is on its way to yes, the space station. It's on its way. So by the time we release this, yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see right. what else. It may comes well up. be operating by that point. Very yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Now this is again just one element of the environmental control is is carbon dioxide scrubbing. You said there was a couple elements that get up there. Uh, I I do want to skip ahead to I think one of one of the things that everybody wants to know about yeah. is you you talk about recycling urine right. on the space station. This is a huge thing, and it's it's not you know urine is just about half the story. There's other sources of water that right. it's recycling into potable into drinkable water. Right. So what is this system? This water reclamation system. All right. So it takes. Um we have a microgravity compatible toilet. That's where it all begins, <laughs> which is harder than it sounds. You know, and, you know, you know how a ground toilet works, right? It uses gravity heavily. Yeah. We don't have that, so we use uh, air to entrain to to pull the urine down into a hose, and then we've got a, a rotary separator that's spinning, and it, it separates uh, the liquid from the gas, and that's very important in uh, for pumps and things like that. That's one of the challenges of microgravity in general, is having liquids and gases in the same place they don't you know in, on earth you got like you know something a carbonated beverage let's say those bubbles rise and they go into the atmosphere and they're gone well it doesn't work in space they just <laughs> sit there and they just stay together so mm. you got to actively separate them and that's what the toilet really that's the heart of the toilet is this spinning separator that uh, separates those two out so anyway we get the urine and we've pre-treated it because we want to keep it from growing fungus and things like that very important yep to keep everything viable so we send that to the urine processor and that uses as i mentioned same problem here though we're trying to basically distill off good water and leave behind all the yucky stuff hard to do in space so we use again rotation we use a rotary distiller using vapor compression distillation, which basically means uh, we're distilling at low pressures and high temperatures, basically. Hmm. It's used on the ground too, um, but we, you know, we've used it, we've modified it to be this rotary version. Um, so anyway, it, it, it uh, puts the urine on this surface of this rotating drum. That's what the urine processor does. And then the heat makes it evaporate, and then we collect the humidity which is fairly clean at that point. Not drinkable, but fairly clean. We condense it and we send it to the next stage processor. The brine, which is the salts that are left behind, all the yucky stuff, uh, we, right now we put it into storage containers. We're gonna work on that for exploration hmm. to get more water out of that, that brine. We've got a new system that will fly in early 2020 to ISS and we'll demonstrate a brine processor and it'll, it'll remove the residual water that's in that brine. So we can also process that on, in the further, further stage processing. Okay, so that, and that's that yucky stuff. So the yucky stuff, instead of going straight to storage, which I guess would be discarded a yes, later. Yes, we discard it. To, we discard it today. Yes. Yeah, would yeah. go I guess through another system right. and squeeze out just a little bit more water. That's right. Okay. Yeah, and right now, and and this is a technology that has been improving constantly over the years, uh, for reclaiming that water, for getting as much water out of this thing as right. possible, potable water, something you could turn into something usable. Right. And I think we're at ninety percent now. Right. Yes. Total water recovery on ISS is 90%. Okay. And so 10% is getting dumped overboard. And so that's that's not good enough for Mars. We'd like to do, for a Mars transit mission, we'd like to do closer to 98%. And that just means we take a lot less resupply water with us. And as I mentioned earlier, water is very heavy. And so we want to recycle as much as we can. Mm -hmm. 
So okay, yeah. Right now, the, the situation for for the for the yucky stuff, you take the yucky stuff. It gets it goes. You said a storage container, right? And then what? The crew puts them on a cargo vehicle and sends it away. Yeah, it goes. Okay. It comes down as with the rest of the trash, which gets burned up in the atmosphere. Okay. Yeah. Now, but there's water in there. We want to get that back. That's the, right. That's yeah, the that's yep. that's the key. Getting yep. that extra eight percent. Right. Um, <clears throat> So, so again, this is just for water reclamation, 90% of the water, uh, of reclaiming that water. Uh, urine, this processor you're talking about, is, is just a small part of the story. Where is all the other water coming from and right. getting put back in? As I mentioned, we um, have to perform humidity control in the, in the modules to make sure it's comfortable for the crew. It's also, it also needs to be at a certain level for the equipment so we don't have any issues there. Um, so... Um, it comes from the crew's, the crew's byproducts, so their breath, their sweat. Um, we've also got payloads that create humidity. Um, we've got stored water that some of the water comes through the bag and comes into the atmosphere, so we've got to make sure we control that. And then the Sabatier process, which we'll talk about, um, creates water. It creates water at the elemental level, and then we actually process it again to... Um, to potable water yeah. for drinking. That's a huge part of the story. So so yeah. back to humidity control yeah. first though. I'm guessing there's a there's a central area where where that takes place where it's it's actually taking away the humidity and turning it putting it back into the water system. Is there fans to bring all the humidity yes. back we over to that have, area? Yes. We actually have um we actually have a, one of these condensed it's called condensing heat exchanger. So mm -hmm. it uses low temperature cooling water across a metal surface which if you've ever had a you know cold drink on a table in Houston uh, or anywhere else uh, in, in the summer, right? It's going to condense on the outside. It's the same idea. It's you know water from the atmosphere condenses on those surfaces because the dew point locally is is at a level that it's going to condense. So we yeah, basically we we uh, we condense the water on these surfaces and then we again rotary separator because we've got air and liquid at the same location. We suck it out with a rotary separator and then we put that in the into lines tubes. Send that to the water processor. Okay, and is that is that the other half? This humidity. Yes. Okay. For the most part, yes. Yeah, yes. It's urine and it's distillate, and then we've got yeah, that basically the humidity condensate that's collected. Everything else in the air. Just All those things together are called wastewater, and we process the wastewater in the water processor. Okay. Yeah. Now on top of this, let's let's go into Sabatier. Now yes. this is just this pulling the existing water, any 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 source of of it currently existing water, urine and humidity and sweat and all this stuff, bringing it back in, recycling it, and getting it ready for it to drink again. Sabatier, right. though, is a system of actually creating water from different sources. Now, right. How does that work? Okay, so we start with back to CO two removal yes. briefly. Um, we instead of venting that CO two to space, we use it. We compress. We, we pull on it with a compressor and we put it into a tank, so we save it. And then Sabatier takes that CO2. It also takes hydrogen that's generated in the oxygen generator. And we'll talk about that. Yeah, we'll skip that one, but yep. let, yeah, it's let's okay. do Sabatier. There's a, there's a product of the oxygen generator that's hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So we take hydrogen and CO2, and there's a catalyst inside the Sabatier that combines those two together, and the product is methane and water. So you're literally taking C, you know, carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, mixing them up, and you get, you know, CH4, which is methane, mm -hmm. and H2O. And that's how, that's how that, that works. So the methane today is vented overboard as well, um, but it could be potentially used as a fuel for future spacecraft. We also might try to process it further to improve the efficiency of the Sabatier process. Mm -hmm. But that water is then sent also, part, it's part of the wastewater that gets processed to potable. 
Wow. And this is a part of the system or is this just a, a, a test element at this point? This is a part of the system. Wow. We don't we don't count on it um, as sure. far as our, our water supply. We, we make sure we've got enough in our stores uh, just in case. But it is it is it had been running for many years. We actually brought it down about a year ago. We had some uh, it was older. It had run for a while. We wanted to learn from it. So we brought it down. We tore it apart. We're learning all kinds of things from it. We're going to upgrade it. We're going to make some design changes uh, and refly that also to, to test it for expiration purposes. Okay. Yeah. And this, and the, does that include the, you know, the methane part of actually potentially using that? Or are we just still focusing on the water part? Um, we're looking into the methane part as well. Oh, cool. It's a different system. I see. It'll be next to the Sabatier. Yeah. 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 It sounds like everything's kind of feeding off of each other, right? Yes. That you're pulling from the CO2 scrubber to get a little bit of that oxygen. That's the important part from the yep. from the oxygen generation, which, you know, obviously you need the oxygen in the air, but that hydrogen, right. you know, mix it together. So yep. so the idea is to close the loop as much as possible, That's essentially. Exactly right. Don't waste anything. Use right. everything has a purpose. Right. That is awesome. And even, yeah, even the methane too. Why, you know, ejecting it now. Now, but sure, that could be that right. could be definitely something to use. Right. Um, let's go right to the oxygen generation then. Okay. Um, you know, this is we, we skipped over that part, but it's important. Uh, hydrogen being fed in for the Sabatier system, but how does the oxygen itself get generated? Yep. So um, this takes the potable water that we've created from the, the water recycling. Um, we feed that to a set of. A, basically a stack of electrolysis cells. This is an, the opposite of a fuel cell. So it takes water in, we feed it energy, electricity, and it basically splits open the hydrogen, the water into hydrogen and oxygen. And so the oxygen goes into the cabin for crew to breathe, and the hydrogen gets separated from the water, and then the hydrogen is sent to the Sabatier, or vented if Sabatier happens to not be there. Like, like today, it's not there while we're fixing those problems. Relatively simple then. I mean, the oxygen is coming from water. Yes. Yeah, that's it. So where does the nitrogen come from? Um, you mean in the atmosphere? The yeah. nitrogen in, in the, the atmosphere? atmosphere? Yeah. Right now, we we resupply nitrogen in tanks. There's I no see. real way to sort of generate you know nitrogen from any other source. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we we fly high pressure uh, nitrogen tanks that then we just bleed off slowly as we need it to okay. keep the atmosphere at it's for the most part sea level type uh, atmosphere composition. We're at 14.7 psi, about you know, 70% nitrogen, 20, 29%-ish um, oxygen. There you go. Yeah, and that's and that's important for this, Excuse you know, me, it's 79% nitrogen, 20% oxygen. 79%, okay, yeah. okay. And then the rest of it's just trace, CO2 and other trace. Yeah, all the, yeah. all the little stuff, yeah. Um, yeah, this is, th that's important for the, the, the health of the crew, right? You know, we, we 100% oxygen, I don't think we would we would want for something that's continuously habited, right? And that has to do with, I think, a lot of safety concerns, yes, right? Yes, exactly right. Um, we've learned throughout NASA's history that we don't want pure oxygen in a spacecraft. It's It can be flammable, right? Mm -hmm. Any little mistake with any electrical device, a spark of some kind could ignite pure oxygen. So, right, so we keep it, we keep it at atmospheric levels like we have on the ground for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Now those those nitrogen. How how often are we are we resupplying the nitrogen? Um, it depends on our usage. We also use it in a couple of systems to f you know flush things out if we need to. It's very nitrogen's inert. It doesn't react with things, mm -hmm. so we can use it to flush 
flush something out if it's hazardous or whatever. Um, so we resupply a couple times a year. Okay. On on these cargo vehicles, like like NG11, for example, would be a type of vehicle that would resupply nitrogen. Yeah, is is nitrogen a topic of discussion for for exploration too? Uh, I think we would likely um, resupply with tanks again, just have a, a storage of it sitting there ready to, to be introduced when needed. Yeah, because it's not like the, the you know, this closed loop system where you're using other elements. You know, we're talking hydrogen and oxygen for the most part. You got a little bit of methane, but yeah, nitrogen's a thing of its own. Yep, that's okay. right. Okay, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So how about uh, right now, you know, we're talking about almost closed loop systems and we're talking about mainly the importance of air and water in this environment and, right. and maintaining those. We're getting to that 90%, but what about, you know, the is, nitrogen is one thing, seems like that needs to be resupplied, but the water, how often do we need to resupply that? Um, it's also... Variable. Variable, that's exactly right. And also ISS is challenging because we have different crew sizes and the crew changes and the, you know some crew drink more than others. Um, we might have more payloads using water than we had before, so it really does vary. Same kind of thing. A couple times a year, we fly several tanks to resupply um, our water system, and we've got a new system on board that's automating some of that water management uh, that's coming online very soon. Um, that will just it just allows us to manage from the ground where the water is, and um, it, it helps a lot. So there you go. It will help a lot. Yeah, so the idea for, for exploration is make this as efficient as possible so you don't really have to rely on resupply at least as much. It probably, you know, uh, over time, eventually you're going to need to restock. And even with nitrogen, nitrogen is just going to be something you need to yeah. you need to think about. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's just basically limit that. Use what you have to, right. as, and maximize that use. seems like a lot of this actually can be used, can you be used here on Earth too? You know, why waste resources when you can recycle them? Is, th- is there applications to Earth as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, across NASA, right, we, we have a lot of Earth applications for the things we do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that rotary, that, or that vapor compression distillation we talked about is used uh, in third world countries where they don't have clean water. It's, it's used in some of these standalone um, water processors that, that help, you know, villages and whatnot in Africa, et cetera, uh, have this clean water source. So, um, yes, there's definitely applications. It's not as, um, it's not, it doesn't pay as well to process urine all the way to potable on the ground. Sure. A lot of people, times they'll, you know, take urine and process it to a certain state and then it can be released into the rivers and streams and then we go pull rivers and streams and process that to um, potable water. So let the earth do a little bit of it, of, of helping us. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that actually reminds me. I think there was there was a part of the Sabatier system where you know we're, we're actually taking these elements and creating water. But I think there was a part where the, the water itself that, that is being created is not quite drinkable at that or potable at at that point. It needs to go through mixed with some other water as well. Is that right? Yeah, we've chosen to go that route. It uh, we we as I mentioned, we verify the quality. We check the quality regularly. If we were to take the Sabatier water and make it potable directly, we'd have to check that quality all the time. Um, and it just isn't worth the extra overhead that we've had, we have to add with different sensors and things yeah. to drink it directly. It also helps dilute the wastewater a little bit, meaning the contaminant level is a little bit lower, which makes it easier for the water processor to, um, to operate. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, going back to the idea of the International Space Station being a test bed, being mm-hmm. a place to to not only imp- just maximize the 
efficiency of all of these systems. You know, we've been increasing that reclamation rate. Now we're trying to get to 98% for, for exploration. Right. What are, it, it seems like we've gone over a lot of these elements already. We want to improve the carbon dioxide scrubbing. We want to improve the water reclamation. You know, what, what are the elements we need? Give us, give us like a picture of the elements we need for a successful um, life support system for exploration. Okay. Um, I think, as you mentioned, it's it's closing that loop as much as possible to utilize all the available resources that we can and c- keep those in a loop, you know, not lose those in trash or 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 whatnot. So that is a that's a key because then you're you mentioned you know it's hard to resupply to Mars. You basically have to take everything with you, and if you don't have it, you don't have it, right? You're six to nine months to a year away from Earth, so you've got to have it. Um, so that we want to um, reduce the reliance on, you know, taking stored water and gas. We want to increase the reliability, and that's a big area as well, because that drives spares and how many you have to take. If your uh, CO2 removal device continues to break, you need to continue to fix parts. You don't have, you only have so many, I should say. So, um, and we've seen, um, we've gathered a lot of data on ISS about this reliability concern and that's an area we're really focusing on trying to improve um, for exploration and that's what we intend to test on ISS is run them for run these devices like that thermal amine scrubber for years if possible to learn how does it not only how does it perform functionally like how how well does it remove CO2 but also how do those components operate um, for a long period of time in the right environment in microgravity you know being continuously operated right It's that that's the idea, right? The idea is is test it now, uh, see how how it works for years, so that way when you go to di- other planets, it's going to work for years, which is going to be the length of those missions. It's that's not right. like yeah, you can't turn around and if something you know breaks, you got to go to the shop. Right. Um, you know, traveling back to the International Space Station now, h- how are we with with reliability? How often do we have to you know fix all these different components? The the CO two, the oxygen generation, the water reclamation. Mm-hmm. What, what's maintenance like? Um, it's, I'll tell you, it's been higher than we were hoping for mm. as far as the, t- the amount that we had to replace. And that's why we're trying to address these issues. Um, uh, particularly the CO2 removal device has been a little bit, has required more maintenance than we were hoping for. And that's why we've got those three different technologies that we're testing um, because we want to be more reliable and fix that dust issue I talked about. That really has caused a lot of trouble. And we didn't see it on the ground. We tested it for a good bit of time. It's just It just behaves differently in space with the microgravity environment, et cetera. So that's why testing on ISS is so critical. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you, you can try all you want down here on Earth, yeah. but it's not until you actually get into microgravity you actually realize some of these distances sometimes, mm-hmm. or differences. Sometimes you just got to do it. The other aspect of our ISS testbed is that you talked about how you know CO2 flows from the CO2 removal device to the Sabatier, the hydrogen comes from the oxygen generator to the Sabatier. Those connections, those um, you know, the fluid flowing from one to the other means that that contaminants, if they happen to be you know hold up with the CO2, for example, the carbon dioxide can go with it, and that can cause issues to the downstream systems. We've seen a little bit of that in our experience, and that's also what we're really trying to learn from. And, and fix at least or at least characterize so we can plan for it. Yeah. So that's really critical too. Is everything operating together in the same place, in the same environment that is as close as we can get to a Mars type mission? That's that's our International Space Station laboratory test bed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why we t- we test all these different elements. Yeah. 
You know, it's it's it's, it's so funny. I, there's a couple things. First of all, on the ground has to be my favorite like phrase for for talking about space stuff because only in NASA do we <laughs> use on the ground to just oh I'm not talking about stuff in space or are on Earth by the way I'm talking about stuff in space so I have to specify yes this thing that's taking place on the planet Earth yes one of my favorite things <laughs> um, but it's also funny you know you're talking about how these just little things like like contaminants in the pipes and and the way these things it's almost like taking an, an exam and if you don't get a hundred you fail. That's kind of what we're dealing with here. We're improving that reliability, yes. getting that 100% on that exam for yes. for making the system pretty much perfect. Right. That's, it has to be because we're crews relying on it to yeah. survive, right? That's the difference, I think, when it comes to exploring and, 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 and sustainable presences, presence on different planets and, and the moon is, you know, we, we can, the touch and go thing is one because you just bring tanks of whatever you need and you just use it for a couple of days and you're gone. Right. But sustaining that presence, that's really where it gets real tough. Right. So what do we think? Are we, are we taking some of this technology? Are we working with the, with the gateway program from the International Space Station and trying to take this and see what it's like on the, on the lunar orbiting platform? Absolutely. Just like we, you know, the ISS is a, is a, you know, it came from our experience in Apollo and shuttle. In the same way, Gateway is going to take experience from um, the ISS, right? And we're going to inform their decision making, what systems go there, um, you know, and, and how we operate them. Uh, we're going to learn from our, our experience. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to come, a lot of work to be done in the future. And, you know, as, 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 as we have the International Space Station, let's use it to the maximum, you know, the, as much as we can possibly use it. There's there's benefits to on the ground, like you were mentioning. There's on the ground. There I go again. Yep. Uh, there's benefits <laughs> to, to going further out into space. So it's just absolutely fascinating. This was a fantastic overview of the environmental control systems. All these different components that need to work together perfectly mm -hmm. um, uh to, to really come together. One, I think that I missed on, and I want to make sure we cover before we wrap up today, you mentioned that, you know, hu humidity control, you mentioned the, the air and, and stuff like that. Temperature was one I think we just sort of glossed over. Yeah. What was the system to, to really maintain that nice, comfortable temperature in space? Okay. We, uh, we use uh, these uh, liquid cooling loops, um, which are basically a series of pipes with cold fluid in it. Um, we use... There's an external loop on the ISS and an internal loop, meaning there are tubes outside the space station. They contain a more hazardous fluid that's much better at um, conducting heat. Uh, and then there's an internal uh, set of pipes that use, it. there's actually water, just a treated water, so we don't get microbial growth. Um, but that's internal to the vehicle uh, where the crew is, and that actually interfaces with um, different systems to take heat away. So all the processes we talked about the water processor, the toilet, all that stuff generates heat, right, as part of its process. And so we have to get rid of that heat. A lot of it is through these cold tubes. Um, some of it is just heat that radiates into the atmosphere. And so from there, we actually use that same condensing heat exchanger. Not only does it remove humidity, it removes heat as well. Um, so, so, um, so, and crew can select what temperature they, they want. You know, it's kind of like your thermostat at home. I like 72, you might like 74. Actually, it's probably the opposite. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, you, you can pick what you want, and the, the system will control to that temperature. So crew can turn down their temperature when they're sleeping, and then they can turn it back up during the day if they happen to get cold. Tell me, tell me if I'm interpreting this right. The, the temperature control system is mostly about removing heat. Yes. 
Okay, yeah. So so the 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 station runs hot with everything running. So yes. we just it's, it's basically about getting rid of it. Right. See, that's interesting because I know like space can get cold at times. Yes. But I, I guess it's just the systems and just the way that you know the the that works that right. that's how you have to control the temperature right Very and space itself is cold and so that's a useful thing we can right. we actually radiate that heat off into space right and it so that's how it leaves the space station there you go but right if we didn't do anything the space station would get too hot and it wouldn't it wouldn't work and the crew would be very uncomfortable so, yeah yeah they uh I, I know i think yeah it's a 72 74 very very comfortable temperature i know I, I would be very comfortable there too i think that does hit everything though so laura thank you so much for for going over this this was an excellent snapshot of what it takes to to sustain the a human presence in space and what's impressive especially about the international space station and is, is that it's been going strong for for a very very long time which is very important whenever we take this technology and go somewhere else we know what we have to do we're getting better and better all the time so thanks for going over this i really appreciate it thank you Hey, thanks for sticking around. So we talked with Miss Laura Shaw about uh, the life support systems aboard the International Space Station and what's being tested for traveling even further out into space. We've talked about environmental control and life support before uh, on episode 79, Livable Space, with John Lewis. And you can see how these systems are just a little bit different by listening to that episode, uh, talking specifically about the systems aboard Orion. We also had an interesting conversation with Stan Love for episode 53. The episode was called Mars is Hard, Here's Why. And he addressed the life support systems for exploration and exploring Mars, as well as a bunch of other reasons that makes deep space exploration so difficult. Uh, check out what we're doing on the International Space Station at nasa.gov ISS, also the International Space Station pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have a question about any of these topics, use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform and use Houston We Have a Podcast in your question to submit it right here to the show. So this episode was recorded on April 18th, 2019. Thanks to Alex Perriman, Norma Moran, and Pat Ryan. Thanks to Adelaide Cameron for helping with today's questions. And thanks to Miss Laura Shaw for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.